Hi, everybody. This is Gary Sandy, and thank you very much for listening to the WKRP cast. So just sit right down, relax, open your ears real wide, and say... Weather today in the greater Cincinnati area. Are you awake? Whoa! Are you awake now? But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. Say what? Dear God, she's going to kill us all. Welcome to the WKRP cast, a deep dive rewatch podcast, spending time with America's favorite radio station, WKRP in Cincinnati. My name is Alan Stair. And I'm his wife, Donna. This is a week-by-week, episode-by-episode rewatch. We're getting into the trivia, the characters, and the details that have made WKRP one of America's favorite syndicated sitcoms for nearly 40 years. So, fellow babies, don't touch that dial. It's time for the WKRP cast. I'm at WKRP in Cincinnati. Welcome back to another WKRP cast. Donna, what are we talking about today? We're talking about commercial break. The air date was the 26th of March, 1979. Written by Hugh Wilson, Richard Sanders, and Michael Fairman. Story editors were Tom Cheehawk, Bill Dial, Blake Hunter, and Emily Marshall. Directed by Rod Daniel. The staff of WKRP is tasked with creating a commercial for a lucrative advertising contract with a funeral home. An interesting tidbit about this episode coming to us from Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock. As we've mentioned, Mike's reconstructing the programming grid for every night that a WKRP episode debuted. This episode aired the last Monday in March of 1979. March Madness fans know that's the night of the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. Any NCAA championship would be tough competition. This one was historic. On NBC, Indiana State, led by the incredible Larry Bird, faced off against Michigan State and their soon-to-be superstar Irvin Magic Johnson. Somehow, over on CBS, WKRP managed to pull out a number 19 finish for the week. Oh, and... uh Michigan State won their first ever national championship. We start out in the bullpen. Herb is making cold calls to businesses trying to get some new accounts for the station. And he calls up a Mr. Morrison. Yes, sir. Uh, Have you ever considered advertising on our radio station? Trying to get him to advertise his tire business on WKRP. Would you ever consider advertising on our radio station? Okay, fine. Herb's ready to pack it in for the day. He asks Les if he wants to go to the movies. Now, isn't this in the morning? It seems like Herb has made a couple of phone calls, maybe, and he's done for the day. Yeah, this is the only phone call we've seen him on, but I I think it is in the morning because later on you find out that he makes luncheon plans with a client. So this is obviously in the morning. Herb's going to go catch a, what, a morning movie? Hey, there's a new show at the Paris Theater. Kick me, kiss me. And it's in 3D. A morning movie. And of it's Kick me, kiss kick me. Kick me, kiss me. Yes. Which we looked. That's not a real movie. Although back in Love Returns, they used what sounded like a joke movie, The Cat from Outer Space. That was a real movie. Kick me, kiss me, which sounds like it could be a real movie. Not. As we as couldn't we can find tell. anything on that, but you never know, so you've got to check them all. Yes. <laughs> well, Les is reading the hog book. I'm busy, Herb. He's not wanting to go to the movies. It seems just 
odd. Everybody seems kind of shocked that Herb has decided he's done for the day and he's going out to the to the movies. Yeah, I, the, surely this isn't the first time that Herb it's, has done this. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's this is like a regular thing. <laughs> now, we did spot a book on Herb's desk. If you look very closely there, it's kind of a dark cover on the book, and it's got a very 70s-looking kind of burst in the middle of it. It's The Secrets of the Hard Sell by N.C. Christensen, a real sales book originally published in 1975. And on the front, it is pitching you hard, contains full details of the startling four-step success plan that can boost your annual sales income by 200% or more. (laughs) And it has actually been used as a college textbook. You know what I'm guaranteeing it does not say in this book? Make two cold calls and walk out in the morning. It's not saying that. (laughs) I don't think Herb's read it yet. No, he's not picked this one up yet because that 200% ain't happening if you're leaving before before coffee break. Oh, and look what's happening. Oh, of course. It's time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Dark blue maroon and white plaid pants, a dark blue jacket with tan suede patch over the right shoulder and on the elbows, a white dress shirt with a polka dot maroon tie, and his white belt and white shoes. Now, we have seen this jacket before. I call it a Hall of Fame jacket. We've got (laughs) to point this one out every time it comes around because that Whatever that thing is over the shoulder is making this jacket for me every time we see it. Well, Herb complains that cold calls are not as easy as you think. And what are not. cold calls? They are not. I used to have to do cold. I did cold calls with the radio station, and then I did a lot of cold calls when I was with the advertising agency. A cold call is making contact with somebody you've never spoken to before and attempting to form a business relationship with them. And it happens by picking up the phone totally cold and dialing a number and asking for someone you've never spoken to before. That's a cold call. And yeah, salespeople do them constantly. We used to have to, at the ad agency, do 50 a day. And so a lot of those were just, hi, this is Alan. Could I leave my name and number for blank, Mr. Morrison or Mr. Ferryman or whoever it was, just <laughs> to try to get that call back. That's a lot of what cold calls are. And we used to have a rule of sevens. You would call a business seven times. And if you hadn't made a connection or formed a relationship or gotten an appointment after that seventh call, then you take them out of your rotation. That's it. I'm bushed. <laughs> Bailey gets very bold here. If you could get some new accounts, then we could all get raises. And and Les, Les could buy the traffic helicopter he always wanted. And this gets Les's attention. Now, she's talking about if you'd get some new accounts, we'd all get raises. It's not quite that direct a relationship. But yeah, if more money were coming into the station, they'd be able to get better equipment and get new stuff. And it seems a little unfair that they are putting all of this on Herb's shoulders, though. He's our only salesman. He's the only. <laughs> he needs somebody, a team, to work with but him. But when she mentions the traffic helicopter, oh, yeah. Les is on it. He <laughs> hops up from his desk and... Make a call, Herb. <laughs> you know what I noticed there? Cold eyes on Mr. Nessman. <laughs> He's wanting that Cold helicopter. Cold eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the phone rings on Herb's desk, and Les is the one that picks it up and gives it to Herb. Les is standing over him like this taskmaster, and it's very threatening, Les's positioning. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, and it's Mr. Ferryman. Mr. Ferryman? Yes, Mr. Ferryman, who is returning Herb's call. So Herb actually left a message. Mr. Wanted- Ferryman has called back. That is the rarest of all rarities when it comes to cold calls. Normally, they're not calling you back. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for returning my call. Mr. Ferryman is the one that asks Herb if he can meet over lunch. And Mr. Ferryman's business? Oh, yes. He owns a chain of funeral homes. Yes. It looks like the writers are playing with words here. Mr. Ferriman. Remember, we are talking about the very literate team of Richard Sanders, Les Nessman, and Michael Fairman, his writing partner. These guys we've run into before. They like to check a lot of pop culture references, and they like to throw in some pretty serious highbrow references. And I think this is one of those. If you look in Greek mythology, which we did, there is a character, and now you you looked up, help me out on pronunciations here. You looked these up, and it okay. is, it, okay, so C-H-A-R-O-N is... Caron. And then it's also t- sometimes spelled K-H-A-R-O-N, which is... Karen. This is the name given to the ferryman of Hades. Now, the ferryman of Hades actually operates a ferry on the River Styx. If you're into your mythology, the River Styx divides the world of the living from the world of the dead. So when you pass on, your soul hops on board this ferry, and the ferryman takes you across. So here's the play on words. As a funeral home director, Mr. Ferryman is assisting the dead as they leave the land of the living and cross over into the afterlife. So some nifty little wordplay on the part of Ferryman Sanders. (laughs) While Herb hangs up and Les asks who was on the phone. That was Mr. Randall Ferryman, owner of one of the largest funeral home chains in the country. I think it's cool that Mr. Ferryman called Herb, but the truth is that Mr. Ferryman's never going to be the guy that picks up that phone. He's got a manager of his advertising that would have actually called Herb back. But this is how, that you know. That wouldn't have been as exciting. Well, a radio station run by eight people. And, you know, you get the guy that has his name on the door of this huge chain of nationwide funeral homes. And uh, he's going to show up there. Les is feeling pretty good about this. Does he have a big advertising account? The biggest. And he's on his way to Cincinnati to bury us all. (laughs) And as Les leans back... And now a special look at this episode's bandage placement for the five-time Buckeye NewsHawk Award winner, Les Nessman. This is the Les Nessman Bandage Report. Now, here's Donna Stair with her report about Les Nessman. Left hand... Knuckles. This has been a look at the bandage placement for Silver Sow and Copper Cob award-winning journalist Les Nessman. Now the bandage is wrapped all the way around it's a his full left hand. Hand is less in a fight club. His thumb is free, but otherwise his hand is pretty it much. It looks like up. he punched somebody in the jaw or something and really took out that hand because man, he's got the whole left hand. <laughs> covered up with a bandage. That's our bandage report taking us right into our cold open. Here we go. WKRP in Cincinnati. We are deposited back after commercial in Carlson's office where we've got Herb and Andy in there with the big guy. 
And Andy is uh, unsure about why a chain of funeral homes would want to advertise on a rock and roll station. Herb tells Carlson, Andy, oh, just just be calm. Pretend we don't need the business. Yeah, Herb's already set up. He doesn't care why a funeral home wants to advertise on a rock and roll station. He just wants the business. And he appeals. Commission City, open your pearly gates to Herb Tarlick and say. <laughs> and Jennifer enters with. There's a dead man in the lobby. <laughs> and Herb knows exactly who it is. Obviously. He's like, oh, that's Ferryman. And he goes out to get him. And while he's gone, Travis tells Mr. Carlson, I don't like the sound of this. Oh, there's nothing wrong with a funeral home account, Travis. Is that a common thing? Do funeral homes advertise on radio stations? It's a very common thing. And actually, not when I was at a radio station, but when I was working at an advertising agency, we had two different funeral home accounts. Neither one of them ever did a catchy jingle, though. Funeral homes <laughs> normally have a much different tone when it comes to their advertising. It, it is organ music, and it's soft tones, and it's talking about things in gentle statements. Uh, not you're going to buy it. That's not happening. But okay. uh, funeral home account is not unusual at all. Well, Herb comes back in, and we get to meet Mr. Ferryman. Gentlemen. What's happening? Uh, Mr. Ferryman is played by Fred Stuthman. Fred was born June 27th, 1919 in Long Beach, California. He was an actor and writer known for Escape from Alcatraz in 1979, Marathon Man 1976, and Network in 1976. So he had a string of movies in the 70s, but Fred started his acting career as a TV horror host on KCOP TV 13 in Los Angeles, California. Fred hosted a Friday night creature feature, and his name, his character name, was Jeepers Creeper, the host. (laughs) And they rhymed that with Reaper and with Keeper and all kinds of things. And we were able to find some of these on uh, YouTube, but the 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 quality quality was awful. This was 1962 to 1966 that we're talking about. I think we're seeing like some kind of a kinescope of the original, and it's a very muddy, dark, and it's hard to see a lot of detail. But it's kind of fun to check out. And this is really kind of a precursor to what Elvira then did in the 70s and 80s with her career doing that creature feature hosting, only she took it on a national stage. So Fred had that. uh, He he knows what he looks like, and he has made a career (laughs) out of that. Well, he has 53 acting credits. He died on July 7th, 1982 in Santa Monica, California. He makes an amazing entrance. This guy is tall. I would bet he's going 6'6", something like that. But he comes rolling in in this dark suit, stiff, starched, white dress shirt, and, of course, the carnation in the lapel. Got the white flower. He has (laughs) no expression and looks like a corpse. As Jennifer said, there's a dead man in the lobby. He's kind of got this shiny sheen to him from the top of his bald head (laughs) down to his neck. And what's funny? He sticks out a hand, and he doesn't make the full grip with Carlson. It's kind of the fingers down, and Carlson grabs it. And when he withdraws his hand, he kind of rubs it like there's something on his hand he wants to get off. Yeah, something like oily. his thumb and his fingers. He's yeah. kind of like, oh. Yeah. And then Andy has kind of the same reaction. He shakes and then <laughs> wipes his hand on his shirt. <laughs> 
Carlson offers Ferryman a chair and asks him to sit down. And Herb asks Ferryman if he would like a cigar. Which sounds really cool, but a cigar? When have we ever seen anybody smoke a cigar in Art's <laughs> office? And Herb turns to Carlson. Cigar. I don't have any cigars. Okay, so he goes to Andy. Andy, of course, just kind of shrugs. He doesn't have a cigar on him. This is just the most hilarious thing. Herb is so nervous, and now he's brought up this cigar thing, which nobody was asking for cigars. Nobody wanted cigars. It just seemed like a cigar moment. It seemed like it, and Herb decided that he'd bring up the cigars. Now he's stuck, unable to get a cigar. (laughs) He just opens the door. Cigars! And then he comes back and sits down. (laughs) As if that's going to solve anything. (laughs) Probably uh, Jennifer's sitting at her desk going, what in the world? Cigars! Mr. Ferryman tells them he wants to advertise. He is a volume dealer. I have just opened a chain of six funeral homes in Cincinnati. I want to advertise. Andy's still with this problem. Uh, yeah, on a rock and roll station. Well, Fairman explains in California, this is how he did it. Nowadays, I'm mostly selling pre-need to young people. Most of your listeners are young. Uh, yeah, most of them. Wanting to help them plan ahead, beat inflation by buying a plot now. Yeah, wouldn't that be a great hedge against inflation? He <laughs> is into this pitch, and obviously he's been doing this a while. He just very smoothly goes right into it and then uh, opens his briefcase and presents them with his brochure, which is this big red square, and he hands it over. Heavy. In my business, people want heavy. Carlson reads from the brochure. Over 6,000 satisfied customers. Fairman says, yeah, that's his slogan, but uh, he wants them to come up with something new. Kind of the McDonald's of funeral homes. (laughs) Billions and billions served. So now he's looking for basically an ad campaign, a jingle, a spot. He's coming to the radio station for this. You'd kind of think somebody as big as Fairman would be going to an ad agency to find that, then the ad agency would go buy the spot time. But he's kind of jumping over that. Now, this is a cheap way to do it because a lot of times you can get a radio station to do production for you. And usually they will include it as a part of a spot buy. If you're running the spots on the station, they're going to help produce them. So you've got something there to run. It's kind of the whole cell phone thing. They'll make that cell phone super cheap because they want you to use it. So the radio station makes sure you've got a spot. They want you to place it. I need something new. You gentlemen, come up with something. Herb is excited. He jumps up and he goes, oh, I think we can do that. How about, uh, how about this? Music comes up. Hoorah, hoorah. <laughs> hoorah, hoorah. Which sent us down a rabbit hole of dirges. Now, everybody has heard this. Yeah. This doo-doo-doo-doo. It sounds so familiar until you start trying to find it. and we I spent three hours listening, listening to funeral to dirges. dirges. <laughs> I, I came in, walked into the kitchen. She had this sad, sad look on her face. I've been listening to dirges. <laughs> Could not find this doo-doo-doo-doo. So thankfully. We happen to have a friend here in Jacksonville who is a professor of music and a director of orchestras. So we presented him with this problem, and I figured he'd take him all of a half a second to, you know, snap back with a song title. He wasn't sure, and it took a couple of days of kind of mulling it over, and then he came up with Song of the Volga Boatman. 
which is a well-known traditional Russian song collected by Mili Balakarev, I nice think. Nice job on the Russian Balakarev. name. Balakarev. I didn't get the... Yeah, Balakarev. Something, something going on in there. And he published in his book of folk songs in 1866. It was a song sung by burlocks or barge haulers as they toiled on the Volga River. So the Volga boatmen are actually the guys dragging the barges on the Volga, right? Yes, they would drag or haul barges and other vessels upstream. And these burlocks were not slaves, but they were pretty close to it. They were landless. They were poor peasants. They were kind of pressed into this. This is what they had to do to survive was haul these barges up the river. And of course, if you listen to a recording of the song, it is a favorite concert piece of bass singers. That is a 1965 recording of the Red Army Choir, so very traditional. Now check out what Glenn Miller did with it. Something like that. (laughs) That's English. It sounds even even more depressing in 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 Russian. Russian. The original (laughs) Russian. Well, a big thank you to Dr. Garrett Ullman, who is music director and conductor of the Jacksonville Symphony Orchestra. He's also the Emeritus Associate Professor of Music at Illinois College. Thank you, Garrett. And as cool as the Song of the Volga Boatman is, it's not what Ferryman's looking for. He wants something (laughs) light. And bouncy. Okay, how about uh, hoorah, hoorah? <laughs> but the way he asks for it is is so funny. I don't want that. I want something light and bouncy. And he's about had enough of this. He tells Mr. Fairman that, all right. I think, sir, you'd be wise to take your business elsewhere. Yeah, I must say that I agree with that. That's when Fairman starts talking dollars. 30 commercials a day. At $20 a commercial, that's $600 a day. We ran the old inflation calculator on that $600 a day. That converts almost exactly to $2,400 a day in 2020 money. And that's a schedule that's going to make you uh, sit up and take note. Yeah, Andy says, well, can we think it over and get back to you? Take your time. of them run out after. Does not take them long to decide that, yes, they want They've to have made up Fairman's their minds business. pretty quickly. Yes. <laughs> now, how did Fairman know that it was going to be $20 a commercial? How did he know the price of that? There used to be a published book called the SRDS, and that's what everybody called it. And in ad age, they even had jokes. They had single panel cartoons about the SRDS. And SRDS stands for Standard Rate 
and data service. It's almost like a phone book of every radio and television station in the country. You could look up their rates. You could find morning show rates. You could find run a station all day rates, whatever you were looking to buy. And this thing was super valuable to ad agencies so they could look up the cost of spots on any radio station in the country and make a buy right out of the SRDS. That was in print. How often did that change? Because surely those prices change. They, they, they did. And uh, the SRDS would come out fairly often. I think we got a new one about every six months or, or we would report uh, to it every six months. So yeah, it, it, it came out very frequently. And a lot of times they station like WKRP would probably inflate their rate a little bit. The one that they published in the SRDS was probably a lot higher than what they were selling to their day-to-day local clients. It was usually they called it the local rate card and the national rate card. And that's probably what Ferryman was checking out. So I'm betting that's probably quite a bit more per commercial than what Herb is getting just on the street. Well, it got their attention anyway, and they took off after him. Hoorah, hoorah. <laughs> we jumped to the bullpen after Ferryman has taken off, and uh, the decision has been made to bring him on board. And Johnny and Venus are at the DJ's desk. We have noticed this before. There's a desk that kind of L's with Herb's there. And if you look at the name tag on the front of it, it says DJ's. So that's where Venus, Johnny, and whoever else is on the air uses that desk. We only ever see Johnny and Venus at it. Herb's at his desk, and Andy's looking the filing cabinets, and Johnny is reading out loud of the large brochure that Ferriman left with them. Ferriman was first with drive-in graveside services. <laughs> All of this stuff Johnny's reading is a treasure trove for us because <laughs> we had to check this out. Drive-in graveside services. That caught our attention. Yeah. And is at- that really a thing? Well, I remember hearing about drive-through funeral homes homes. And it seemed like to me a very California kind of thing and also a very 70s kind of thing. Well, we did a little digging and discovered the world's first drive through funeral home actually was put online in 1968. And it happened in Atlanta, Georgia. So we got a Hugh Wilson connection. Hugh's seen drive through funeral homes right there in his hometown. A man named Herschel Thornton came up with the first drive through funeral home. In an interview, Herschel said, folks will be able just to drive by and view the last remains of their loved ones and then keep going. That was from a Jet Magazine article in 1968. So Ferryman's claiming to be first with these drive-through graveside services, but we got Herschel in Atlanta doing it in 68. (laughs) So then Johnny continues. All electric eternal flame. (laughs) And mourners as you need them. And I thought, really? Is that a thing? Now, I have heard in some Middle Eastern countries, sometimes there will be professional mourners. And I had heard of the term before. But we looked it up, and there are professional mourners right here in the United States, and they even have a name, moirologists. They are actors hired by family members to grieve. This is a job that is getting more and more popular. They provide support for the deceased. You actually study the person that you're going to go mourn for so you know a little something and you're playing some kind of a long lost relative sometimes in some of the descriptions we were reading about this but you can make anywhere from 30 
to $100 per funeral morning. This is deeply weird, man. Well, Herb tells all of them they're going to be rich. It's the biggest advertising account that they've ever had. Venus is concerned. This is a, a saturation buy and actually... Right, 30 spots a day. Yeah, Ferryman even used that term, saturation buy. A lot of stations will restrict you in your saturation buying to hourly. You can only buy up to 24 spots in a day because they are worried about that we heard your spot after we heard your spot right before we heard your spot. It's the only <laughs> thing that's on the air. Venus is concerned about how's that going to sound? We'll be right back to the music after these important words about death. Coming out of a rock and roll song, playing this, and then trying to get back into some rock and roll music. Andy explains that it's not going to be the typical funeral home spot. Ferryman wants a rock and roll jingle. And somehow now this has become the responsibility of the radio station to give him that jingle. Venus, because he's been in a band, Travis tells him that he's going to be the one to come up with a jingle of some kind. Herb adds in, okay, you've got to work all of these things into it. Hey. All weather floral arrangements. What does that mean? Johnny deciphers that for us. Now that's plastic flowers. <laughs> B, maintenance-free artificial turf. Plastic grass. <laughs> C, they accept all major credit cards. That'll be your plastic money. We have our assignments. Venus is writing the song. Mm-hmm. Travis is booking the recording studio. Herb, for some reason, has drawn the job to audition singers. We don't know what his qualifications are on that, but as Herb says... Any jerk can sing. He takes this job seriously. He starts right away, and he asks Johnny if he can sing. So long for a while. <laughs> What Johnny's singing there is a little snippet of the closing theme to the 1950s TV show Your Hit Parade. Thanks to WKRP cast listener Robert Pellin for catching that one. Just on cue, here come Jennifer and Bailey right into the bullpen. Venus nabs them, asks if either of them can sing. Well, Bailey's got some experience. She sang in chorus at school. Sing! Sing a song! Sing out loud! Sing out strong! Sing a good Herb. Thing. Hold on a minute. I recognize that. <laughs> Herb is quoting song lyrics from Sing or Sing a Song. Sing, sing a song. Sing a song. Sing out loud. Sing out loud. That's good. Sing out strong. Sing of good things, not bad. Which came from first source original Sesame Street in 1972. Joseph Raposo, who was born in 1937 and passed away in 1989, was an American composer, songwriter, pianist, singer, lyricist. Dude was into music. He is best known for his work on Sesame Street, for which he wrote the theme song. Sunny day, sleeping up. as well as several of the classic songs from the show. Being Green and C is for Cookie are both Raposo compositions. Sing, Sing a Song has been recorded by Julie Andrews and Perry Como as a duet. The Carpenters, Shirley Basie, 
and of course, the Muppets. Sing a song. Bailey steps up and takes center stage to sing Amazing Grace and does a very nice job. She has a very quiet, sweet-sounding voice, and I think she surprises them all. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Like me. Amazing Grace is a hymn written in 1772, but actually it was not written as a hymn. The music was added later, right? The words were written by John Newton, who was an Anglican clergyman with the Church of England in London. It was written to illustrate a sermon on New Year's Day of 1773. It's unknown at the time he wrote it if there was any music accompanying the verses. It may have just been chanted by the congregation. In 1835, 28 years after Newton's death, a man named William Walker, an American composer and song leader, put Amazing Grace to music. Now, Amazing Grace is one of the most recognizable songs in the English-speaking world. There have been an estimated 6,600 recordings of Amazing Grace. Now, I always thought that the most recorded song in history was Yesterday by the Beatles. Well, I ran into a couple of articles that said Amazing Grace was the most recorded song in history. But then I went to the source. I went to the Guinness Book of World Records and said, what is the most recorded song in history? And it's neither one of them. It's summertime by George Gershwin. With an incredible 67,591 different recordings of Summertime. That really surprised me. I mean, I know the song Summertime. But wow. Made famous uh, in the musical Porgy and Bess, but... 67,000. That's a lot. And there is a society dedicated to cataloging all the recordings of this song, and they actually have in their possession over 57,000 different recordings of Summertime. That's amazing. And boy, we have skittered way off the path. Let's get back to Herb asking Jennifer to sing. Okay, Jennifer, you're next. Uh, what would I sing? Venus suggests... um. Happy birthday. Yeah, I guess what's going to happen here. She sings happy birthday in the style of Marilyn Monroe when she sang it for President Kennedy. Happy birthday to you. Now, you might recall we've referenced this event before in pilot part two when we were talking about Delos V. Smith, our, our character actor that was in there, Buzzy. Yeah, he, I love him. Yeah, we, we love Delos. Uh, and if you <laughs> haven't heard pilot part two, go back and check it out and find out about Delos. But one of the very interesting things about Delos, he was Marilyn Monroe's escort to Kennedy's birthday party the night she sang that song. Now, the song, Happy Birthday, was written by sisters Patty and Mildred Hill and published in 1893. Patty was an elementary school principal in Louisville, Kentucky, and Mildred was a pianist and composer. And here again, of the songs that, you know, they're just everywhere, this is considered the most recognized song in the English language. 
Now, we've got a ton of stuff. You found an incredible amount of stuff about Marilyn singing Happy Birthday. And well, this we, is a very iconic uh, oh, moment of and the 20th century. We really here. didn't get into it the last time we mentioned this. I played a little clip of the song, but we didn't talk about it at all. So go ahead and set us up here. Well, Marilyn Monroe was asked to sing Happy Birthday to President Kennedy on May 19, 1962, at Madison Square Garden in New York for his 45th birthday. And, of course, that sultry, provocative way that she sang the song became headlines and an iconic moment of the 20th century. The birthday event was a Democratic Party fundraiser, and there were many famous people there. Including Peter Lawford, who was JFK's brother-in-law and the master of ceremonies. Marilyn Monroe came out wearing a sequined Jean-Louis gown that she had to be sewn into. Literally sewn (laughs) into. It was so tight that Marilyn Monroe could barely walk across the stage. She had to kind of scamper across on her tiptoe. Now, Peter Lawford removed Marilyn's white mink jacket before he left, revealing her skin-tight, nude-colored dress, which caused the crowd to cheer loudly. This dress had an 18-inch slit in the back of it, and it was covered in more than 2,500 crystal rhinestones. Now, director Mike Nichols, who would direct The Graduate and the late husband of Diane Sawyer, happened to be standing behind Marilyn when she sang, and Nichols later claimed in an interview that he had a ringside seat. She was not wearing underwear. Yes, and I saw this referenced in several articles about the no underwear. (laughs) And, oh, you left this one for me. There you go. This big word. Peter Lawford used the word... Pulchritudinous? Pulchritudinous, which means breathtakingly beautiful and I when liked, he introduced Marilyn. I liked your comment on it. You said, why couldn't he have just said yeah, breathtakingly he, beautiful? And here she is, the pulchrudit... You said yeah, it. I'm not going to. <laughs> the... The Pulchritudinous. Why didn't she? Why didn't he just say, "Here she is, the breathtakingly beautiful Marilyn Monroe"? Oh, because he's and, Peter Lawford. Mr. President, on this occasion of your birthday, this lovely lady is not only pulchritudinous but punctual. Mr. President, Marilyn Monroe. I saw several videos of her singing, and I think Lonnie Anderson did a much better job. Lonnie did a good job. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. And Herb obviously appreciated the performance. Herb is, oh man. Happy birthday, dear Herbie. Happy birthday to you. You can see the pulse in his temple. Oh, his face. I oh. love his face, facial expressions. He's while not she's breathing. Singing. He is <laughs> he's taking very shallow breaths. He can't believe this is happening. And she winds up facing him. Now, he did make a move right before she started this, and it was really 
for us. When Bailey is doing her song, Herb is sitting over kind of in front of Venus and they're both facing Bailey. When they talk Jennifer into singing Happy Birthday, then Herb pushes his chair over and turns around now where he's at the opposite end of the desk and facing back to Venus. And he indicates that open space between them is where Jennifer should go. Well, Jennifer takes advantage of Herb's positioning and now we've got a great shot of her over Herb's shoulder. She but her- sneaks up behind him. Yeah. Yeah. Herb just made this little move, which really was more for us than anything. And when she does that last kind of lean in, the tease, I'm going to kiss you, but oh, I'm not. It looks like she's going to. Yeah, just right in there. Herb doesn't move at all. He's frozen. He's speechless. Like you said, he's barely breathing. But Venus's reaction. All right. <laughs> and Herb. Get uh, Jennifer on that list quickly. Yeah. Herb has the same delivery to that get on the list as he did <laughs> after she hit him with that little Gusto's comment and shot him down in the Date with Jennifer episode. He had that shaky kind of delivery. Yes. <laughs> Herb's got his singers all lined up. So now they're in a recording studio. Andy's talking with Johnny about his announcer duties. The most important point. Are you going to be able to stay away? The most important point is that I'd be able to stay away. Yeah. So this is just proof that Johnny can function while he's like 85% asleep. <laughs> he heard every word. He's got some awareness of what's around him. All right, so Mr. Carlson and Herber are definitely puffed up. They enter leading Mr. Ferriman into the studio, and Ferriman is expecting musicians. Ready to cook. Where are the pickers? Yes, he was expecting pickers. Andy explains that the musicians have already laid down a track, and now the professional singers are ready to record. Andy did not give Carlson a heads up. (laughs) No. (laughs) On the professional singers, I think maybe he should have given him a little warning before he introduced him right there in front of the client. (laughs) What professional singers? Are these professional singers? Bailey, Les, Jennifer, and Venus, they're all standing in a group with their headphones and their mics. They're ready to sing. And Venus is kind of directing, since Venus wrote this song, he is calling out the cues and the takes, and Venus is dressed for the occasion Mm -hmm. in a purple one-piece jumpsuit with gigantic bell bottoms. He's got a sash at the waist, bling on the top of each arm, and he is ready to record. Herb introduces Ferryman to Johnny, the professional announcer, who is still sleeping with his head down. And when he's told to say hello, Johnny starts coughing, clearing his throat. He raises up and his headphones are on kind of backwards. And those yellow cup headphones with the black band over the top. Sennheiser HD 414's had a pair of those. Well, before going into the control room, Ferryman just gives them one last tip. Remember, keep it young, keep it hip. So we got Travis, Ferryman, and Carlson have gone into the control room, isolated from where the magic happens out there uh, with the microphone. Ferryman sits down in a chair, and I think this is the only way we can get the man into the shot. If he were standing, we'd only (laughs) see him up to his shoulders. The window didn't go that high. No, it did not. So we've got Travis on one side and Carlson on the other. And it takes them three takes to get past the announcer's lines because Ferryman keeps interrupting with suggestions. Funeral services at a river. Yes? I think loved ones needs more love. Now, I noticed here for the comedic rule of threes, we... We had three breaks. Two of them were Ferriman's, and then the third one was Herb. He had to jump in there with his. Punch up reasonable. That's all. Punch up reasonable. Punch up. 
Johnny, can you punch that up? Punch? Right. Herb, I'm going to come out there and punch you. And it almost got Herb punched. Finally, we get to the song. And Mr. Ferriman is obviously enjoying it. He's chair dancing in the control room, but still with an expressionless face. It's hilarious watching him do this. And again, I'm... (laughs) I'm thinking about Fred Stuthman and the fact that he used to do these goofy bits on KCOP. The man's got a great sense of humor, and you can really see it. It's a lot of fun watching him in that booth. When he does the little uh, the little shake with his chest and that carnation <laughs> is bouncing up and bouncing down. back and forth. That's so great. Now, we were very curious as to who wrote for real this jingle. And Tom Chihok, story editor from the first season, has been in contact with us. And I've actually got Tom on speed dial, which I'm sure he's starting to regret that he gave me his (laughs) phone number. But I called up Tom and I said, hey, who would have written this? And he said, well, if it was music within the show, it would have been Tommy, meaning Tom Wells, who was the music director and the writer of all of the incidental music for the show. So I said, well, now, would he have done the lyrics? And Tom said, no, that probably would have been Hugh. And I said, now, this was a Richard Sanders, Michael Fairman script. Tom Chihok said, oh, well, then I'll bet you anything it was Richard that wrote the lyrics. He said every detail Richard Sanders took care of when it came to one of his scripts. So most likely... Richard Sanders, Michael Fairman wrote the lyrics for this jingle. Then the music for the jingle was provided by Mr. Tom Wells. One, two, three, four. Hey, you're young and swinging. No time to think about tomorrow. But there ain't no way to deny it. Someday you're gonna buy it. And what lyrics? Those are awesome. Yeah, it's it's so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was the end of that scene. And when we come back, we've got Venus, Bailey, Les, Herb, and Jennifer. They're all in the studio. Johnny's on the air. They're waiting to hear the Ferriman jingle played for the first time on the air. And this must be the start of that hourly, this is the first hour, I guess. But uh, Andy steps in and we hear the end of Young Blood by doo-wop group The Coasters. I saw her standing on the corner. <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. The coasters were one of the first African American doo wop style acts to cross over into rock and roll. And the coasters picked up quite a few hits. They had Searchin', Charlie Brown, dun, 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 and Along, Along Came Jones. Along Came Jones. Yuckety yuck. Yuckety yuck. 
Don't hold back. Yakety Yak, probably their biggest. Both Searchin' and Yakety Yak were number one hits in 1957 and 58, respectively. Youngblood reached the top ten in 1957. The Beatles were heavily influenced by doo-wop and by African-American groups. Youngblood was actually a song that wound up in their Cavern Club playlist when they were playing in Germany. The Coasters were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 19... 1987. So as the ad's playing, they're all dancing along and mouthing the words as they listen to it. And we really believe they sang this, right? You really feel like those I are their voices. Did. I think they did. They did a, a nice job, but I, yeah, I think they did their own singing. Before the ad plays, Johnny Billboard's Heart of Glass. We'll be pumping it right on through to Heart of Glass from Blondie in just a moment. But first, dig these very important words. And I didn't know what this meant, Johnny Billboard's yeah, Heart I, of Glass. Throughout that term, I said he billboarded Heart of Glass. That's it. Oh, yeah, what is that? You're going to lose anybody as a listener. If they're going to reach over and punch the button on the radio, they're going to do it during a commercial break. So oh, what, okay. what you want to do is say, hey, don't go away. We've got this coming You're up enticing next. enticing them to yeah. say, hang on. Yeah, Heart of Glass. If I had heard that was coming up, I would have changed. I didn't. I never Not really cared for that. <laughs> oh, but it was huge for Blondie. And actually, Blondie believed... <laughs> Blondie was so enamored by WKRP's promotion of the song, they believed that being exposed on WKRP helped push them to number one, and they got a gold record. They were so appreciative, they actually will send the WKRP production a gold record as thanks, and they do display it there in the bullpen. So well, we'll maybe be, we need to start playing some yeah, songs on this more podcast. Often. Well, we're playing songs that have already been hits a long time <laughs> ago. An interesting little side note to Heart of Glass, Blondie put a lot of emphasis on the fact that WKRP helped push Heart of Glass to number one. Michael Hernandez, the accountant of rock, has started another little interesting side project. He has been tracking songs which charted and were also mentioned on WKRP to see if a mention on WKRP actually helped them at all. And in his estimation, it really didn't do that much for the song. If a song was going to be a hit, it was going to be a hit, and WKRP didn't necessarily push it that way any faster. The next scene takes place in Carlson's office. Carlson is sitting at his desk, tapping his pencil, as he looks over a spreadsheet. Now, we get the idea that this is a cut immediately out of the booth into his office. This is happening at the same time. He puts the spreadsheets in the drawer, walks over to that monitor that is next to his door, and turns it up just to catch the end of the Fairman spot that we were listening to in the studio. He listens for a while, then he turns the monitor off and he heads out of the office. So we cut back to the studio. Everybody is in the studio now. It's end. The spot's over. They're all congratulating each other, patting each other on the back, hugging, shaking hands. Super excited about this. And jokingly, Johnny asks, Where are those razors, Andy? I don't know about that now, man. (laughs) Again, these guys, not a clear understanding of how razors work in media. Herb, though, getting over to Jennifer. You were wonderful. I know her. 
Here comes Art. He's telling everybody, great job, but he grabs Andy and asks him, hey, Can I see you for a second, Andy? What's your thing? They have gone to talk about raises. <laughs> After Venus says this, they all high-five each other. So now we come back to Carlson's office, cutting from the studio. Andy and Carlson are just sitting down. Andy gets his sense that something is wrong, and he says, is Ferryman upset? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a pretty good word for it. He's uh, he's very upset. Well, Carlson tells Andy that he's been dreaming of someone like Ferryman with a lot of money to spend on the station to come along for a long time. And Art is into this explanation. He's not answering Andy's question. He's kind of starting into this explanation about something that has happened that we don't know about yet. Right, and Andy thinks he can fix it. If Fairman's upset, it's okay. I'll yeah. straighten everything out. Yeah, and and then Carlson stops him, and again, not directly responding to Andy. Well, frankly, where I come from, that commercial's in bad taste. Carlson does not like a funeral parlor talking about volume business, group rates, credit cards, and one day you're going to buy it. It's too tacky. Yeah, he thinks they need to take a stance regardless of the money. He wants to be respected by the people of Cincinnati. He would love the money, of course, but he didn't like getting it this way. So Andy figures out why Mr. Ferryman is upset, and he asks Art. You resigned the account, didn't you? I did, yeah. Mr. Ferryman then makes an entrance, which the glide on this guy cracks <laughs> me up. If you watch him come through that it looks door. looks like he's sliding on ice. I know, and he is the height of the door. <laughs> the man is 6'8". He is just so long and lanky. Good morning, Mr. Carlson. Ferryman comes with the biggest carrot he can possibly have. He's got the first month paid in advance. $18,000. He dangles that check and dares him to resign the account. 18000 sounds like a lot of money even now, but if you convert that $1979, $18,000 to $2020, it'd be nearly seventy-two grand. And Herb, if at a 7% commission, he would have made 1260 which would be $5,000 in today's money. Herb is looking at five grand additional in the paycheck from this one account. Carlson looks at the check, and you can tell it is hard, but he sticks to his decision. Okay, here comes Herb, not knowing yet what has happened, and then Ferryman tells Herb. Your Mr. Carlson has just resigned my account. Now, Herb sees the check, realizing what this means to Herb Personally, he actually starts to kiss Fairman's <laughs> yeah. hand. And here's it's another one. It's time. time. Herb Darling, fashion alert. Pale yellow dress shirt, dark salmon colored jacket with a sheen to it, striped salmon tan and white tie, plaid salmon white and tan pants, Brown and white two-tone <laughs> shoes. You know, it's just by the fact that you just listed way too many colors. Well, and salmon. That's too much. Salmon entered a, a lot. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But the pants, we they're the ones that he wore in Hold Up, and we've also seen them in another episode or and two. we've seen... Popular pants there. The shirt, I think. we've seen. It's like a Mr. Potato Head. You just pull out different pieces and you stick them on Herb. They work for Herb. <laughs> <laughs> 
Herb's kissing Ferriman's hand. Carlson tells him to stop. No, I won't stop it. Then you're fired. He is now aligning himself with Ferriman. He's on Ferriman's side against Andy and Carlson. Andy grabs the check from Herb and he gives it back to Ferriman, wishes him the best, but he says WKRP is out. Now, I think Ferriman's got a bit of an ulterior motive for coming down here as well. Just uh, give me my jingle and I'll be on my merry way. What's that song? No, he didn't pay for it. Carlson said, that song stays here. The jingle isn't yours. It belongs to KRP. And nobody ever talked about production costs. And he showed up with 18 grand, which would have been just the amount of money to run. They've got some money tied up in producing this jingle. They rented a studio. So somebody owes somebody some money. I think Art's going to be in the hole on this thing. Well, Fairman threatens to sue, but Carlson sticks to his guns. Fairman says, all right, my lawyer will contact you. Sir, we can't afford a lawyer. So why don't you have your lawyer contact her? And you know, really, I think think before you get the lawyers involved, it'd be a lot cheaper for him to just go find another production house and say, hey, I need a jingle done. That's going to be way cheaper than a lawsuit. So before Fairman can leave, Andy has been suspicious since the moment Fairman walked into Art's office the first time, and he says he's curious about something. There's a lot of rock and roll stations in Cincinnati. Why'd you pick ours? I checked around. I figured this station was just bad enough off to take my business. So Andy was right. There's a reason Fairman targeted him. After Mr. Fairman leaves, Carlson's looking really sad. There goes the biggest chunk of business that ever walked into WKRP. But you know, I think Andy is impressed by Art's integrity. I like your style. Not so much by Herb's. Oh, Herb. You're a gutsy guy, too. So now we're left with Herb and Carlson alone in Art's office. And, you know, it's still stinging Herb. He just got fired. Oh, big guy. uh, Am I fired? (laughs) No, I don't think we could get along without you. Boy, is Herb relieved when he hears that. He thanks him and leaves, but then immediately comes back in. And that move had you laughing every time he did that. He is so fast on that turnaround. Well, the door actually shuts behind him, and then boom, it he's touches. Right it back touches, in. <laughs> and he's made the turn coming back in. It's it's like a magic trick. There's no so cut or quick. anything. I want to get one thing straight. <laughs> we had the account, and I was fired, and then we lost it, and I was rehired. That's right. Okay, fine. All right. <laughs> Just straight how things run around here. Carlson calls her back in, and it's one of those bonding things. Uh, let's go to lunch pretty soon. Herb is thrilled. There's a dynamic here that I kind of reminds me of Dwight and Michael on The Office, and Dwight always wanting to go to lunch with Michael, and here's <laughs> here's Art giving Herb a chance to go to lunch. Herb grabs Carlson's hand <laughs> and starts to kiss it. Got no kissing, Herb. <laughs> So we get a capper scene back in the bullpen. Uh, Venus sitting at the DJ's desk. Jennifer making her way around delivering mail. Another one of those things on the list of stuff Jennifer will do. Uh, she goes from desk to desk. She's passing out mail. Hits Venus, Bailey, Les. And they all look pretty ho-hum. Uh, just another day. And Herb enters carrying a cassette player. Remember those? Yes. With a huge smile on his face. All right. Now, we're not doing a fashion alert here because (laughs) we've seen the coat, we've seen the pants, but I would like to point out the orange waffle pattern shirt. It has some kind of a texture to it that was cracking me up. So check out Herb's orange shirt. Well, he announces to everyone that he finally landed the Morrison Tire Company account. Bailey asks, how did you do that? I'm a salesman. 
Willie Loman has nothing on me. There's Hugh Wilson doing those literary references again. You got to keep up. You got to know Willie Loman was a fictional character and protagonist of Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman. And Willie, not a happy, upbeat kind of guy. This play debuted on Broadway in 1949, and it's Arthur Miller's most popular, which deals with an aging, broken down loser of a salesman. Trying to justify his life. Yeah, so Herb, don't be comparing yourself to Willie Loman. And then there's this neat little connection here. Arthur Miller, who wrote the play, was married to Marilyn Monroe from 1956 to 1961. Connections everywhere. While Herb's got that cassette player, he presses the play button. Hey, you're young and swinging. No time to think about tomorrow. But there ain't no use in denying that One day you're gonna have a flat And a day for a Morrison Tomorrow Morrison, Morrison He's the man with the jack, man with the plan Morrison, Morrison He's a tar-making man who loves you a lot All's well that ends well. Uh, We go to a freeze, had some fun, and what is up for next week? Donna? We're going to be talking about who is Gordon Sims. Venus is forced to confess his real name and the fact that he is wanted for desertion from the Army. That's going to do it for this episode of the WKRP cast. If you'd like to watch along with us, make sure to check our show notes, and thanks for joining us. Got a question, comment, or correction? Let us know about it. Write us, WKRPCast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye. May the good news be yours. The WKRP cast is not endorsed by MTM Enterprises, Shout Factory, or CBS. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. WKRP in Cincinnati, the WKRP logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of WKRP in Cincinnati characters are registered trademarks of MTM, CBS, Shout Factory, or their respective copyright holders. Almost forgot, fellow babies. Booger!